It's 6 a.m. on Friday, July the 6th, 1984, in West Los Angeles. Businessman Stephen Craig pulls into a parking lot in an alley just off Elm Drive. As Craig walks away from the car, something catches his eye. It looks like someone's fly-tipped a heap of garbage in one corner. He's pretty sure it wasn't there when he left last night. The bundle is covered with a grubby quilt. As he gets closer, a foul smell hits him. His approach disturbs a cloud of flies. He notices some rust-colored stains on the quilt. Suddenly, the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. He has a bad feeling about this. A very bad feeling. Then he sees it. Peeping out from the edge of the quilt, a human hand. Craig runs to his office on the corner of Elm Drive and West Pico Boulevard. He calls 911. His heart is pounding as he waits to be connected. At last, the police operator comes on. Craig blurts out what he found. A dead body in the parking lot. The operator remains calm and professional. They handle calls like this every day. But for Stephen Craig, this is a novel experience and one he hopes he never has to repeat. A little later that morning, LAPD homicide detectives John St. John and John Rockwood arrive at the scene. The two Johns watch investigators in forensic overalls lift back the quilt. They uncover the naked body of a young female Caucasian. She's about five feet nine, 120 pounds by the look of her, and she's tied up with a long leather thong. At 66 years old, Detective John St. John is a veteran homicide investigator. 42 years a cop, 36 of them in homicide. He's lost count of the number of dead bodies he's seen. But that doesn't mean he's hardened to the experience. You never get used to this. The moment you do, it's time to hand in your badge. St. John knows that for every murder victim they discover, there's a family somewhere waiting for a missing loved one to walk through the door. That's one of the things that motivates him, bringing closure and justice for the families. St. John looks down at the victim, for now known only as Jane Doe number 60. His team's first task is to find out who she is. For St. John, this is crucial. Some detectives try to get inside a killer's head, St. John takes the opposite approach. He starts with the victim and tries to see the case from their point of view. He wants to know everything he can about them, building up a picture of their life and personality. The more you know, the more you care. And for St. John, the job is all about caring. Who were her friends, her family, her lovers? Where did she live? What was her job? What was her passion? What made her laugh? If he doesn't even know what her name is, he's got nothing to go on. It's gonna be hard, but within the force, St. John has a nickname. They call him Jigsaw John. Every case is like a jigsaw puzzle, and no one can fit the pieces together quite like John St. John.
My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Los Angeles, partnering up with a long-serving and tenacious detective who solved more cases than most cops have dunked donuts. John Patrick St. John, AKA Jigsaw John, is a legend in the LAPD. When an unidentified murder victim is discovered early one LA morning, St. John knows he has his work cut out for him. Then, six days later, a teenage girl goes missing and the experienced detective fears the worst, that there's a serial killer on the loose. The race is on to find the perp and take him off the streets before he kills again. From Noiser, this is Jigsaw John. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. John Patrick St. John became a beat cop in 1942. It was a different era then. The murder rate in L.A. was around 100 per year. By the 1980s, the annual figure was closer to a thousand. St. John was still a rookie officer when he was beaten unconscious with an iron bar. The attack left him blind in one eye. It also gave him a unique insight. Now I know what it's like to be left for dead, he once said. St. John got his detective badge in 1948, joining the homicide division of the LAPD. By the end of his career, he'll have investigated over 1,500 murders, the majority of which he successfully solves. Now, naturally, the job has changed over the years, but St. John keeps on top of technological advances. He knows that it's not just the police who embrace innovation. When he started, drive-by shootings were not a thing. Now they're a part of L.A. gang culture. The serious junk food habit has left him pudgy-faced and overweight. The fat old man, he jokingly calls himself. Even so, it would be a mistake to underestimate St. John. He may not be capable of running down a suspect anymore, but he knows that most cases are solved by a combination of doggedness and desk work. St. John's patience is his defining trait. As one fellow homicide detective said, He'd sit with a witness or a suspect for 10 minutes or 10 hours. He'd never raise his voice. He'd never lose his patience. He wouldn't leave until he got what he needed. The younger cops could learn a lot from this gray-haired old-timer, especially when it comes to serial killers. They just happen to be Detective St. John's specialty. By the end of his career, he will have put away 12 of the most notorious, including William Bonin, the so-called highway killer. Bonin murdered at least 21 victims from 1979 to 1980. It takes St. John and his team eight years to catch him, but catch him they do. In 1984, St. John is past the age of which most cops retire. Not that he doesn't occasionally think about spending more time in his cabin on the Klamath River in Northern California, 
But as he likes to point out, most cops die two years after they retire. And he's not ready for that just yet. Besides, there's another case to investigate. Another killer to track down. The autopsy is carried out by Los Angeles County Medical Examiner, Dr. Wegner. It's now that the pieces start to come together. The cause of death is given as ligature strangulation, which means that a cord or rope was used. Ligature strangulation is distinct from hanging and is unlikely to be self-inflicted. It's almost certain that this is murder. So far, there's nothing that Detective St. John hadn't already worked out. But then Dr. Wegner points out an interesting detail. Let's call it jigsaw piece number one. The bruising on the victim's neck doesn't look like it was caused by a rope. Instead, he believes it's consistent with something thinner. If a thin cord was used, it would have to be strong. One possibility is a leather thong like the one she was tied up with. From the temperature and the condition of the body, Dr. Wagner places the likely time of death close to 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, July 5th. But it doesn't rule out the possibility of it being as early as July the 3rd. This is jigsaw piece number two. Next comes jigsaw piece number three. Some areas of the victim's skin have been removed with a sharp knife post-mortem. Why? Dr. Wagner offers no opinion. That's for the detectives to work out. Jigsaw piece number four is a deep cut on the victim's left forearm. Five blue sutures are still in place. It looks like the victim cut herself and went to the hospital to get it stitched. Jigsaw piece number five is an S-shaped tattoo on the bottom of the dead woman's foot. S. Maybe that's the first letter of her name. It's not much to go on, but it's something. Dr. Wagner finds jigsaw piece number six under the victim's fingernails. It's a mysterious yellow substance, which he scrapes off and sends for analysis. Jigsaw piece number seven is a distinctive silver ring with an Indian head design. Someone, somewhere, must know who that ring belongs to. Finally, a forensic specialist takes the victim's fingerprints. Jigsaw piece number eight. But the body's already begun to decompose, so it's not easy. There's no guarantee they'll get a match. All these pieces of the jigsaw mean nothing on their own. But each of them may become significant when placed next to something else. That's Detective St. John's Hope, anyway. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. 
The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. On Friday, the 13th of July, the case moves forward, but not in a way any investigator wants. A woman called Lita Jane McCabe contacts the LAPD to report the disappearance of her 15-year-old daughter, Tracy Campbell. Tracy went missing the day before. Lita has spent a frantic 24 hours searching the streets, asking friends and neighbors when they last saw her daughter. When Detective St. John hears about the case, his ears prick up. St. John knows Tracy can't be the body they found a week ago. The teenager was obviously still alive after the unidentified dead woman turned up. But Tracy's home address is Midvale Avenue, Mar Vista, a neighborhood on the west side of Los Angeles. It's less than four miles from the parking lot where Jane Doe number 60 was found. Could these two cases be connected? Jigsaw John can't rule it out, but the Tracy Campbell disappearance is not his case. He asked the detectives working it to keep him informed. Those detectives sit down with Lita McCabe and her family to recreate the hours leading up to Tracy's disappearance. The family consists of Tracy's older siblings, brother Daryl and sister Tanya, and her cousin Todd. They all live together in a small apartment. The detectives learn that on July 11th, the day before she went missing, Tracy went with Todd to see a friend of his called Bill Bradford, a neighbor in the same apartment building. Bradford is a photographer. He's helping Todd break into modeling by taking a few publicity shots. Todd says that Bradford had promised to do the same for Tracy. On the morning of the 12th, Lita, Daryl, Tanya, and Todd all left for work early, leaving Tracy alone in the apartment. Daryl remembers that he left behind a full pack of Camel cigarettes for his sister because she had no money to buy her own. Later that day, after Tracy had gone missing, Lita remembers that Bill Bradford's behavior seemed a bit odd. He came to the apartment to offer his support, but he was shaking and couldn't look anyone in the eye. He said he hadn't seen Tracy and had been in Orange County all day taking photographs. The family clearly thinks there's something suspect about this guy. Even Todd, who's supposed to be Bradford's friend. Todd says he'd gone by the building's parking garage later that day and noticed that Bradford's car was freshly washed. He'd asked Bradford why the car was so spotless. Seems he didn't usually bother cleaning it at all. Bradford's explanation was that there'd been a fire in the carburetor and he'd had to clean the car inside and out. The detectives take all this in. There's no law against cleaning your car, and maybe Bradford is just an oddball. He was probably nervous at the family's apartment and didn't know what to say in a difficult situation. All the same, the detectives want to talk to him. The following day, an LAPD officer interviews Bradford at his home. Bradford admits that he saw Tracy on the 12th, the day she went missing. His story is 
that she came to use the telephone, as she didn't have one of her own in her apartment. This is 1984, remember. Nobody has cell phones. He then claims that he drove her to Venice Boulevard because she wanted to buy cigarettes. He dropped her off at the store, went on his way, and never saw her again. A few days later, on July 16th, Bradford is interviewed again. He gives essentially the same account, only this time he mentions that Tracy had asked for his help putting together a portfolio of modeling shots. The officer asks if he can have a look around. Sure, says Bradford. This is not a thorough search with a warrant, just an informal once-over. They don't find anything suspicious. Then, the officer takes a look at Bradford's car. The inside of the trunk is damp. Bradford explains that he's just cleaned it out. Bill Bradford certainly likes to clean that car of his. The strange thing is, according to friends, he only seems to have acquired this habit in the past few days. Detectives review Bradford's two statements, comparing them to what other witnesses have said. They spot a few things that don't quite add up. First, Bradford told the family that he hadn't seen Tracy at all on the 12th. Now he's admitting she came by his apartment. Next, Tracy's brother Daryl says he left her a full pack of camels. So why would she need to go to Venice Boulevard to buy cigarettes? And don't forget, Daryl also said she had no money. Then there's Bradford's newfound obsession with keeping his car clean. Also, there's the fact that he changed his story. Now there could be an innocent explanation, or it could mean Bradford is thinking very carefully about the information he shares with the police. For some reason, he decided to drop this detail in. Perhaps he's worried that the police will find some photographs of Tracy, and he wants to prepare the ground. All those years of working with old Jigsaw John have rubbed off on the detectives. They start to put the pieces together. It's the evening of Tuesday, July 31st, 1984. Bill Bradford's in a bar in West Los Angeles called The Meat Market. It's one of his favorite places to hang out. He comes here to look for women to photograph. Bradford likes to describe himself as a photographer. The truth is, he makes his living as a handyman. And unlike most professional photographers, he gets his pictures developed at the one-hour photo moto shop on Venice Boulevard. The lines he gives out might sound corny to you. Things like, has anyone ever told you you could be a model? Some women laugh in his face. Others, the lonely ones, hang on to his every word, lapping up his compliments, feeling their insecurities washed away by his interest. He doesn't need to make a connection with everyone he approaches. He just keeps going till he finds the right mixture of vulnerability and attractiveness. That's not going to happen tonight, though. Tonight, the meat market has three new customers. Homicide detectives Charles Worthen, Robert Rooney, and John Rockwood. They're not here for a relaxing after-work drink. They're looking for Bradford. Rockwood flashes his badge at the bartender, who nods in the direction of a seedy-looking guy pestering a lone woman at the bar. She's clearly not fallen for his usual lines, but Bradford is thick-skinned, 
and just keeps on going. Until Detective Rockwood puts a hand on his shoulder and gives him the news. William Bradford, you're under arrest. The woman is shocked. Not that she was ever likely to go with him, but still, it feels like a lucky escape. While this is going on, other officers search Bradford's apartment, this time with a warrant. His car is towed away to the precinct. At the apartment, investigators find various items of women's jewelry, a silver chain, a rainbow bracelet, one pair of earrings with purple stones, and another with fake diamonds. None of this can be linked to the missing teenager, Tracy Campbell. More potential evidence is found inside his car, including a number of photographs and negatives. Inside the trunk, they find an address book and a knife. Next, investigators lift up the floor of the car and find a number of keys. As the items are locked, Detective Rockwood shares his findings with Jigsaw John, who's still leading up the Jane Doe number 60 case. And now, Rockwood is beginning to think the two cases must be linked. St. John agrees. The two detectives pour over the photographs retrieved from the car. They're looking to see if they can recognize the woman from the parking lot. But her face was so badly distorted that it's hard to tell if she's one of Bradford's models. Then, Rockwood spots something. Several of the photographs show the same young woman in a variety of outfits. In one, she's topless. Rockwood points out a tattoo on the woman's ankle. He reminds St. John of the patches cut out of Jane Doe number 60's skin. One of them was in this exact same position. The senior detective is impressed. Then St. John notices something himself. The same girl has a bandage on her left forearm in exactly the same place as Jane Doe number 60 had stitches in a wound. They've now got a definite link between the body they found in the parking lot and Bradford. And of course, they can also link Bradford to the missing teenager, Tracy Campbell. The next breakthrough comes when Detective St. John hears back from the LAPD forensic investigator tasked with analyzing the dead woman's fingerprints. They've got a potential match. A 21-year-old cocktail waitress called Sherry Miller, a former employee of the meat market, the bar where the detectives arrested Bill Bradford. Sherry, the name begins with S, same as the tattoo on the dead woman's foot. Could this be one of the jigsaw pieces slotting into place? Detective St. John looks through Sherry Miller's police file and finds an address for her mother. According to the record, Sherry herself has no fixed abode. Either she stays with friends or sleeps in her car. Call it a hunch, but Jigsaw John decides to cross-check her mother's details with the address book found in Bradford's car. Sure enough, Sherry's mom's address is in there. Another link tying Bradford to the murder victim. Another jigsaw piece falling into place. St. John's next task is one that no homicide detective relishes. 
but he can't put it off any longer. He pays a visit to Sherry's mother, Mara Lynn Miller. First, he needs to establish beyond any doubt that Jane Doe number 60 is Sherry Miller. The fingerprint evidence could be mistaken. The links to Bradford could just be coincidence. He has to make sure. He asks Mrs. Miller when was the last time she saw her daughter. She tells him it was June the 30th. Sherry came around and used the telephone to call a guy named Bill, a photographer who was going to take some pictures of her for a modeling job. Sherry's mother tells Detective St. John that her daughter showed her an Indian head ring she had just bought. She also confirms that Sherry had recently cut herself on the arm and had gone to the hospital for stitches. There's no doubt in St. John's mind now. The dead woman in the parking lot has to be Sherry Miller. As he tells her the news that no parent wants to hear, Mara Lynn breaks down. Detective St. John reaches out a consoling hand. He promises her that he will find the man who did this. He knows it's a dangerous thing for any homicide detective to say. But this time, he's got a feeling it won't be an empty promise. On the way out, he leaves his card and tells her to get in touch if she thinks of anything that could help them find the man who did this. Detective St. John decides it's time to put pressure on his prime suspect. Bradford is taken to an interview room. Jigsaw John lays out some of the photographs recovered from Bradford's car, all showing the same model. He asks Bradford who the girl is. Bradford confirms it's Sherry Miller and admits that he knows her from the meat market. He says he's known Sherry for about two years. It's chatty, saying he recently agreed to help her break into modeling. It's the same old line that Bradford tries on every woman he meets. St. John asks him where he took the photographs. Bradford hesitates, as if he's thinking carefully about his answer. Finally, he tells the detective they were taken at Topanga Canyon, east of Malibu, along the coast there. When? Again, Bradford takes a moment to come up with his answer. Uh, sometime in June, he thinks. Jigsaw John's pretty sure Bradford's lying. The detective knows Topanga Canyon, and the landscape in the photographs doesn't look anything like it. Why would Bradford lie about the location, unless he had something to hide? Next, another piece of the jigsaw slots into place. Sherry Miller's car is found abandoned. Detective St. John has another one of his hunches. He takes the keys that were found under the floor in Bradford's car and tries them in Sherry's vehicle. And guess what? One of the keys fits. It seems like a breakthrough, but Jigsaw John wants the case against Bradford to be rock solid. So he's thorough. He tries the same key in another car, one that belongs to the woman who lives with Bradford. It also fits. The key proves nothing. Nothing that a competent defense lawyer wouldn't be able to blow apart in court. But St. John isn't discouraged. He keeps working away, building the case against Bradford. For instance, 
He shows the various items of women's jewelry found at Bradford's home to Mara Lynn and Sherry's friends. They all agree. The silver chain, the bracelet, the two pairs of earrings, they all belonged to Sherry. When Detective St. John asks Bradford about this, he's got a slick answer already prepared. Of course he has. He says Sherry gave the jewelry to him to get repaired. It's possible, but it's equally possible that he took them as trophies. Then St. John hears from Sherry's mother, Marlen. She's remembered something. In fact, she thinks she knows who killed her daughter. And it's not Bill Bradford. It's an ex-boyfriend of Sherry's called Ted McGee. Sherry had once mentioned to her mother that she was scared of McGee. Apparently, he had a set of knives and used to boast about how he liked to cut people with them. But St. John makes inquiries among Sherry's friends. He discovers that Sherry hadn't seen McGee for some time. According to them, Sherry had recently said everything was fine with her ex. Now, that doesn't rule out the possibility that he might have come back into her life. But St. John doesn't see McGee as the murderer. After all, he can only connect McGee to Sherry Miller. He can link Bradford to both Sherry and Tracy Campbell. And in both cases, the connection is strong. On August 3rd, Bill Bradford is released on bail. It's frustrating for Detective St. John, but he has to accept it. That's the way the legal system works. It doesn't mean Bradford's in the clear. It just means his lawyer has won this round. By now, Jigsaw John is convinced Bradford is Sherry Miller's murderer. He strongly suspects that he may be involved in Tracy Campbell's disappearance, too. Naturally, he keeps Bradford under surveillance. A few days after his release, detectives follow him to the one-hour photo moto. After he leaves, the detectives talk to the employee there who tells them that Bradford's behavior is pretty weird to say the least. He brought some negatives in to have prints made, but then suddenly saw one negative he didn't want included. So he cut it off and put it in his mouth, scraping the emulsion off with his teeth. When Detective St. John hears about the bizarre incident, he's convinced that Bradford destroyed the negative because there was something incriminating on it. The more he learns about Bradford, the more convinced he is that he is the killer, and the more determined he is to catch him. Detective St. John goes back to the photos of Sherry Miller. He spends hours studying them, in particular, the landscape. He's convinced Bradford is lying when he says they were taken at Topanga Canyon. To St. John, the rock formations look more like the Mojave Desert. There's only one way to prove it, and that's to go out there and look. But the Mojave Desert is a big place. There's 54,000 square miles of it. Looking for a single rock formation that matches Bradsford's photos is, well, you could say it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, only that doesn't even come close. Jigsaw John realizes he has to narrow it down. He knows he's not going to get any help from Bradford, so he talks to one of Bradford's friends, a guy called Nick Kloss. 
He asks Kloss if he ever heard of Bradford going to the Mojave Desert. The answer is yes. In fact, Kloss and Bradford had camped out there together a couple of times. They always went to the same special place that Kloss knew. It's well off the beaten path, so you can be sure no one will disturb you. Not only that, Kloss remembers that Bradford had called him shortly before Sherry Miller went missing, asking for directions to their favorite secluded spot. He also checked that Kloss wouldn't be there in the coming week. Nick Kloss has Detective St. John's attention. He agrees to show him where this place is. On Saturday, August 11th, a convoy of LAPD vehicles drives out to an area on the west side of the Mojave Desert, not far from the city of Lancaster. Kloss was right when he said the spot is hard to find. It's a basin-like indentation in the landscape, not visible from the road as you approach. Nick Kloss may view this as an ideal camping site, but as Jigsaw John looks around with a mindset of a seasoned homicide detective, he sees something else, a killing ground. The area looks oddly familiar to the detective. Odd because he's pretty sure he's never been there before in his life. There's one distinctive rock in particular that leaps out at him. It's shaped like a seal. Jigsaw John is sure he's seen it before. He leaps through the photographs that Bradford took of Sherry. He holds one of them up comparing it to the rock formation in front of him. The rock in the background of the shot fits exactly over the rock in the actual landscape. Now he knows for sure that Bradford was lying when he said he took the photographs in Topanga Canyon. Question is, why? Detective St. John calls in a full-scale search team, including choppers and mounted officers from the Sheriff's Department. Doesn't take long before they find something. It's the one thing Jigsaw John had been dreading, and it's only 400 feet from where Sherry Miller was photographed. It's a body in a state of advanced decomposition. This is the reason Bill Bradford couldn't tell Detective St. John where he took the photos of Sherry. If he had, he would have led the police straight to a second body. The following day, August 12th, an autopsy is conducted on the body found in the desert. Cause of death is established as ligature strangulation, exactly the same way that Sherry Miller died. The pathologist estimates that the victim died on July 12th, the day Tracy Campbell went missing. Tracy's dental records are checked. They match the teeth of the victim. There's no doubt about it. They found Tracy. It's not the result anyone wanted, but at least there's a body for the family to bury now, and more evidence of Bradford's guilt. When the police found Tracy's body, her face was hidden by an article of clothing tied around the head. It was a blouse with an unusual snail pattern on it. Tracy's mother insists it's not her daughter's. So whose is it? Jigsaw John has another one of those hunches. He starts showing pictures of the blouse to Sherry Miller's friends. A guy called Michael Faddis 
recognizes it as one he gave to Sherry. This is a decisive breakthrough that links both victims. Sherry's blouse found on Tracy's body, but they didn't know one another. The only common denominator is Bradford. He's the only person who could have put the blouse there. The evidence against Bradford continues to grow. Remember that mysterious yellow substance under Sherry Miller's fingernails? The analysis comes back identifying it as paint. Now it turns out that one of Sherry's friends is a house painter called Kurt Androsky. He tells Detective St. John that on July the 2nd, Sherry Miller helped him decorate a house. The color of the paint they used? You guessed it, yellow. What's this got to do with Bradford? I'll tell you. On August 16th, detectives carry out a further search of Bradford's apartment. They discover a number of items that didn't show up the last time. Among them is a lady's wristwatch marked with the same yellow paint found under Sherry's nails. It's Sherry's watch. Has to be. The search also turns up a length of white rope which matches the bruising around Tracy Campbell's neck. Police also find a long leather thong identical to the one that Sherry Miller was tied up with and consistent with the ligature marks around her neck. They also find a lethal double-bladed knife. They can't prove it was the one that cut away patches of Sherry's skin, but it certainly looks like it could be. The following day, forensic investigators turn their attention to Bradford's car. A luminol test indicates the presence of blood in the trunk, but the sample's too small to prove conclusively that it's human. Well, it looks like the car washing paid off. It's true that the evidence against Bradford is circumstantial, but taken together, it's overwhelming, especially when another fact comes to light. Detective St. John learns that there's a rape charge outstanding against Bradford. This alleged rape even took place in the same part of the Mojave Desert where Bradford took Sherry's photos and where Tracy's body was found. Looking into Bradford's police file, St. John discovers other rape allegations too. It's clear the man is an extremely dangerous sexual predator. For Jigsaw John, there's no doubt that William Bradford killed both Sherry and Tracy. He suspects he may have killed other victims too. Bradford's trial begins in June 1987. He's found guilty and sentenced to death in May 1988. The trial's notable because at one point, Bradford fires his attorney and takes on his own defense. He offers no evidence to prove his innocence, and his legal strategy is hard to fathom. At one point, he turns to the jury and says, just think how many you don't even know about, clearly implying that he's killed other women. In fact, St. John and his colleagues believe Bradford may have committed at least eight other murders. Many of the women shown in the photographs he took have never been identified. Bradford dies in prison from natural causes in 2008 after being on death row for 20 years. At one point, 
he campaigned to bring forward his execution. Then, at the last minute, changed his mind. Seems like he lost his nerve as his own death stared him in the face. Jigsaw John retires from the LAPD in 1993 after 51 years service at the impressive age of 75. He dies just two years later, as he always predicted he would. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We head back to 1929 for an intriguing murder mystery. In Southampton, England, the body of a businessman, Vivian Messiter, is found inside a padlock garage, apparently shot in the head. Local police turn to Scotland Yard for help, and Detective Chief Investigator John Prothero is sent to take charge of the investigation. He uncovers vital evidence missed by the Southampton force and follows the clues to an elusive criminal wanted by several police forces. The suspect is a con man and a thief, but is he also a murderer? Find out how a shaft of sunlight helps Prothero solve the case in A Trick of the Light, the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep. <laughs>